Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Stephen Benedict and I will be discussing, for my money, maybe the best sports documentary of all time, Tokyo Olympiad, a 1965 Japanese documentary directed by Kon Ichikawa, which looks at the 1964 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. This is a film that has everything to do with sports and at the same time, nothing to do with sports. Uh, Ichikawa pays as much attention to spectators, to officiators, to people at the fringes as he does to the central figures of this Olympics. He does not care about the outcome. He cares about the participants. He cares about the spectacle. He cares about, uh, I mean, just the atmosphere of, of this. Every single sport that you might care about at the Summer Olympics, if it's included here, it is going to look at it from a vantage point that you've never thought of, let alone never seen before. And I think that that's the real benefit uh, that outsiders sometimes can bring. I think a great example of that with boxing in cinema is somebody like Martin Scorsese, a little asthmatic kid, never participated in any sports, never followed them. You take that kind of sensibility and apply it to boxing, it's going to be something totally different in how he imagines it. And that's the case with this film. It's just such a extraordinarily surreal look at kind of a backstage pass into the human condition. Uh, love this film. Can't recommend it highly enough. And it is this week's film on No Happy Endings. This is somebody who didn't know anything about sports and was the replacement for Akira Kurosawa, who was the first person approached to direct this, but appropriately said that he wanted to control the ceremonies, not just the filming of the ceremonies. Um, and then you, you know, what, what amazes me about this film, quickly I'll say, is it is like looking at every one of these sports and people for the first time. Right. And I don't know how he did it. I just don't understand how the angles and the perspectives and the tonality of the film is so amazingly original and yeah. yet riveting. It's not original in some avant-garde way where you're just like, oh, God, this is boring. It's just breathtaking. Yeah. I think, you know, I think when people talk about Olympic movies and um, inevitably people uh, drift a little bit towards Lenny Riefenstahl in 1936, the it, it from the Berlin Games, which was made under the, the Nazi regime. Um, but this is by far and away the better one. Um, I think people are people are interested in what Riefenstahl did because she used slow motion and she was given such access and almost an unlimited um, financial outlay to to depict the games and she was able to <clears throat> put the camera in the most unusual places and very very experimental places uh, to the point that her film becomes obsessed with aesthetic and as we know aestheticism drifts in not inevitably but in the wrong hands drifts into fascism and uh, Connie Chikawa I presume had seen her documentary and said, okay, this is a how not to approach. We're going to definitely move in another direction. Um, and I think one thing that he, two things that he had at his, at his, to his benefit was he was dealing in color. 
Okay, and I think color has a has a beautiful thing, beautiful role to play in this film. Not only because of the film stock. I mean, the, the images are so beautifully captured. Maybe because of the film stock. And I also contend in a strange way, Bryn, part of it is the fact that there was less pollution in the world, you know, half a century, over half a century ago. And so the air is clearer, so the image is sharper. But also there's two other things that Ichikawa had in his, in his favor. He was shooting in a widescreen format, which I think for our generation uh, and we're basically people since the 1960s, it, it spells epic. Right. And um, it gives it a breadth and a scale, which we're expecting Lawrence to come across the sand dunes on his camel. Totally. And, uh, another one is his um, telephoto lens. Now, I know the telephoto lens has been along for around, around for a long time, but he uses it in, a, in, a, in an innovative way. And the funny thing is that his technique of using the telephoto lens is something that Kurosawa had been successfully experimenting with in his, in his uh, samurai pictures in the early 60s. Um, uh, Hidden Fortress, um, Yojimbo and Sanjuro, okay? And especially Redbeard, which is made in 65. But um, Ichikawa uses the lens not just to capture the event, but he emotionalizes the, the, the phenomenon of the race or the contest. And what he also does is he also somehow puts us inside the mindscape of the athletes which is what Riefenstahl did not do. She did not care about the athletes and their experience. It was the aesthetic all the time. And I think that's what makes this a great, great documentary is that at certain points, repeatedly, you are put inside the mind, the heart, the beating heart, the racing heart of the athlete to experience the, the heat of the contest at any given moment. And that's, I think, what elevates it. I think that's the reason why you and I respond to it in this respect. Is because it's not just a it's not just a recording of the event, you know. We we can see that through newsreels. This is not a newsreel, you know. He puts his time and again inside the mind of the athlete, and you don't have to necessarily know their background. You know, you don't know what you don't have to know what country they're, they're coming from. You don't know the 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 strain. Are they recovering from injuries? Is their first Olympics? Are they going for a repeat gold medal? You just you're in that moment with them and i think one of the ways that ichikawa did it was again through as i said the telephoto lens because what it does is it compresses the visual space so we're looking at an athlete the, the example is you know if we look at um a baby the um bikila sorry i had to check his name and pronounce it a baby bikila he's the ethiopian athlete who won the the marathon and he comes into the stadium and ichikawa is down the the far end behind the tape, looking at um, a baby coming around the court, the final bend. And because he's on the long lens, he's focused only on the athlete and everything else is out of focus. It's literally just a blur. And be, I don't know how the mind adapts itself to this notion, but what I'm feeling immediately is his emotion where there's nothing else in this world except for what's right in front of me on the next step. I don't see the crowd, I don't hear the crowd, I don't see the flag, I don't see the tape. But as he comes closer towards the tape, then the tape comes into focus because the focal range is so narrow. Does, does that make sense? Sure. And all of a sudden he goes, this is it, I'm now coming to the end. And you see that again and again in the, in the documentary. So it's the surrounding events are just a backdrop. And what is pin sharp is the struggle, is the, the contest itself. And I think it's, it's, 
it transcends to the level of poetry. It's just magnificent to watch this. You know, one of the things I'm trying to, I've seen this film, I don't know, half a dozen times, and it's available for those of you that have the Criterion channel. You can watch it on there now. Is that at once it feels like a fever dream of this well, moment in time, and on the other, it is so amazingly lucid. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I think, that the the corridors of access that he wants us to pass through to watch this doesn't care who wins the events. He's equally interested in the people who lose. He's equally interested in the, in the middle. He's equally interested in anybody who might be in the stands watching, yeah. how we watch. Um, it's atmospheric without f ever feeling static. Yeah. I don't know how he does that. Um, he is constantly toggling between these juxtapositions of victory, defeat, joy, sorrow, young people, older people, coaches, um, the pageantry of the Olympics, the yeah. manifestations of uh, nationalism before mm -hmm. nationalism. You know, like what I mean is, is like nationalism expressed in a way that's not commercialized. Like there's right. still a form of individuality here because how long it's as if all the people involved either uh, watching or being watched have not been stage managed about how to do that. Yeah, I, I think part of that is because, you know, TV had yet to be really take a foothold right. in popular culture. You know, uh, I don't know which Olympic Games was the first that would have been the satellite games. Um, I think that Mexico in 68 was the first color Olympic Games broadcast. Um, so you were saying, you said that you had that great phrase, how to watch. I mean, you saw the spectators in the stadium, but they're not out with iPhones. They're not out with the cameras. They're not filming it. They're experiencing it. Yeah. You know, so that, there's, that is um, a sense of immediacy for you and I as a viewer, because we're not aware of a, of a camera intermediate, sorry, mediating between ourselves and the event, because right. we're not seeing people with cameras, right? right? And so there's no one doing this cheap selfie thing down on the track after they've just won the 100 meters, right? Do you know what I mean? Um, and just that, that wonderful moment when Bikila wins the, the, the marathon and he doesn't necessarily do a lap of honor and he flops on the, the earth and he starts shaking his limbs and um, bending. He just starts doing yoga stretches and all this sort of stuff. I thought that was just remarkable because he wants to get his body back into shape, <laughs> you know, out of this torture that he, right. he, he went through the last. I think he broke the world record. Right. I think he broke the world record there. But yeah, but it, it's also it's pre-commercialization of the Olympic Games. We don't see Coca-Cola or McDonald's or Seiko. Um, up on the scoreboard recording the time which is what we which is what we have and so in a way I think this is I don't know at, at what point this happened but maybe it's the turning point of the dial where it's before um, the corruption of the Olympic ideal from, from ancient Greece you know where it becomes as you said nationalist it's about an, an opportunity to be triumphal you know I think that for me as a kid that really emerged the first time uh, in in uh, for the Moscow Games in 1980, uh, America boycotted because of allegedly the invasion of, Afgan Af of Afghanistan. I have every reason to believe that that was the case, you know. But maybe there was an ulterior motive, 
and then the retaliatory one in 1984. So it becomes a really political, ideological thing, you know, and maybe that's part of the beauty of Olympiad because it doesn't have any of those things, you know, and because we're so used to looking at the Olympics now through the rubric of commerce, uh, sorry, commerciality and, you know, NBC Sports or whoever's going to be covering it that we're, we're expecting the logo in the corner. We didn't see a logo anywhere outside of the Olympic five rings. Right. Well, and, and I think also, I mean, I mean, the first Olympics that I ever recall watching on TV would be the 84 games in L.A. And you're already you're only allowed to really watch it and, and how it's curated for you as a viewer is very much, an, even though I'm Canadian and was watching in Canada, was an America, a pro-America position. Very much. Everything was geared towards that. Everything was geared towards Reagan's America and the backdrop of the Cold War and that Russia was collapsing and we're going to dominate you here culturally, um, competitively, um, you know, not even just all the drugs that were in there. I mean, that's, you can learn a lot more about that from a wonderful 30 for 30 that ESPN broadcast 9.79 asterisk, where they talk about how many athletes, including Carl Lewis, tested positive and that everything was created. The whole drug testing program was there so that they would know how to cheat the tests to get into it. And I'm not saying in any way that just the Americans were cheating. Obviously, the East yeah. Germans and Russia also hugely cheating in previous games. But to see a games, I mean, it, it frankly reminded me a lot of, I think around 2000 was the first time I saw a boxing match in Cuba, in Havana, at right. Kid Chocolate Arena. And no cameras filming it, nobody in the stands f photographing it. People yeah. drinking in the stands, smoking, cigars. I mean, it's all the stuff that when people in, in, in the States especially look at Mad Men and go, oh, I wish I was in that time. Uh, I was in that time, That's even funny. though it was 2000. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the sense of culturally, uh, you know, there was no distance between the athletes and the people watching them there, which is yeah. another big thing. You know, am I ever going to see a great baseball player after the World Series or a great soccer player or driver in the Indy 500 um, walking around people? Never. No. And yeah. here, in, in, in these games, you get this real sense of that it's never pandering to this aspirational view of the games with an agenda, with a preset agenda. Instead, it's like it's probing. It's curious what it's right. going to Yeah, yeah. I, I think we've also got to bear in mind then that the, you know, this was Tokyo 64. This was 19 years after the end of World War II, mm -hmm. I think. Um, you know, August, August, 60, August 45, the games happened in, in September 64. So 19 years and effectively Japan was still effectively not colonized, but occupied by American forces. Right. And this was an event, I think, where Japan was being welcomed back into the community, the international community. And I think it's it's very significant that that happens in 64, eight years before Germany in 72. And, you know, Germany, the Munich Games uh, was heralded as the peace games. 
until the murder of those the, of the, until the murder of the Israeli athletes. So that was an absolute catastrophe for the Munich Games. But nothing equivalent mm-hmm. happened, or perhaps could have happened, at the Japanese Games. I can't think of a, a, a semi-localized territorial ideological conflict that was happening in Far East Asia or Southeast Asia outside the burgeoning Vietnam War, but the Japanese weren't involved. So there was nothing that was going to infect that. But again, you didn't see this as a triumphal Japan. You saw the, you see the documentary, but there's nothing, there's nothing humble about it either. It just is. There's no faux, faux modesty. There's no need, there's no sort of uh, obligation to, to feel to apologize or, you know, to, to acknowledge the past or, you know, any, not that the Japanese government, successive Japanese governments has admitted to the, um, to the genocidal acts that they committed in the 30s and 40s. But there's none of those moments that you now seem to see in successive um, in uh, Olympics where everybody's aware of its history and we've got to contextualize everything. The context of this is just the beauty of the contest. That's all that matters about it, you know? And the people, and the people, obviously. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, the lovely thing about seeing the young kids waving the flags as the the, the flame is being carried around uh, the city to, towards, um, towards the stadium. And I was just looking at it, and I just reminded myself how fit an athlete must be, not only to run, but to hold that torch. <laughs> it's not light and then the final journey is to run up all those steps i mean if you stumble once forget it it's okay. it, that's a pretty steep climb yeah. you know and i've seen that there's been some pretty spectacular uh lighting of the flames i can't remember which games it was but i do remember an archer I, shooting it over yeah yeah and they had a time that just in case he missed that was going to ignite anyway you know yeah you made the shot, and that was that was spectacular. That was poetic. That was a beautiful moment. I can't remember which games it was, though. Well, and another another thing. I mean, you mentioned World War II. Um, obviously, Japan has been utterly decimated by the yeah. Americans, yeah. and uh, not just the two nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima here, um, but the image that. Ichikawa uses of the Phoenix rising is let's remember Tokyo itself was firebombed at the orders of Curtis LeMay targeting a wooden city and civilians that killed a hundred thousand people in a day. That was an unnecessary action that LeMay himself said, if we lost the war, we would all be prosecuted as war criminals for, for how we adjudicated this war. Yeah. Now you can argue you know, they invaded Pearl Harbor and, you know, all of that. I mean, which I would encourage if, if you're interested in this angle of the story, watch The Fog of War and Robert McNamara discussing his participation and, and subsequently uh, being involved as the Secretary of Defense and, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is right around this time also. And then with, with Nixon. And then with Nixon, too. Yeah. But I found that there is this sense of Tokyo rebuilding and uh, and also just at the helm of, of telling this story is not, again, like we said, not commercial interest motivating it, but an artist from this kind of detached perch 
observing all of these people, observing the whole spectacle of it. And I never know what his agenda is beyond... Um, it kind of reminds me like it was said with Andy Warhol with the the spending three minutes with various iconic people at the factory, just getting three minutes of footage of them. What do they call it? Screen tests. Yeah, I think yes. it was later called um, that some art critics have said what's so spectacular to watch there is just what do you do with three minutes of a camera pointed at you in a kind of hostile way? Yeah, it's it's just capturing real time, which was a big obsession of Warhol, is how time, how we move through time, how time moves through us, and it's unadulterated. And there's an aspect to this that's so intimate with the people um, that I'm reminded of just how much I hate being around cameras and how polished people are and stage-managed opposing. Oh yeah, we're now incredibly self-conscious. We're camera ready all the time. All the time. And there's a beautiful un unadorned nature to the, the people that we see on screen here. And it's really, really great, Brad, that you mentioned Warhol and the real time, because when we're looking at it today, we're looking at, we're expecting um, different angles. You know, yeah. long shot, the wide shot, the close up and everything like this. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cameras positioned all throughout the, the stadium. So let's just take the 100 meters, for example. Right. And because of increasing technology, they can actually place a really, really uh, small camera on the side of the track and you can run with the athlete. So you can feel as though you're there. But I don't really think that you do feel that you're there. Right. Because they're cutting from one angle to another angle and they're showing it to us in action replay. We relive it, relive it and relive it. But what amazed me in this documentary uh, was the 100 meters men's final, mm. which, run by Bob, which was won by Bob Hayes. And let's remind ourselves, he's running on a clay track. <laughs> right. This is pretty tartan, right? So he's losing grip every single step he makes. And he, um, he comes in, I think, at 10.6. And I'd just love to see that guy run in his prime on tartan, right? But what I loved about the way they captured, they depicted the 100-meter final, it's all shot in one single take. Now, that sounds nuts, of course, even because, hey, what are they going to do? Do it again? You know, let's go for a second. Sure. But it was the director's decision to just keep it in that one single. So you live it in real time. You are seeing the 10.6 seconds, 25 frames a second, 24 frames a second coming down the track. And yeah. you see him emerge. They all leap out of the blocks at the same time. But then you, the, he just pulls and pulls and pulls and pulls away. So the real time aspect of it is it shows that, you know, Ichikawa understood very, very clearly the principles of film. And then applied them, applied the drama, the fiction of film, to the intensity, the reality of of um, uh, sporting contest. Yeah. If I could just go back though, um, just to your point about Kurosawa wanting to direct the opening and closing ceremonies. Sure. Um, uh, I didn't watch for boycott reasons. I just I refused to watch a footage of the Beijing Games, um, but I did watch the London Games. Uh -huh. Not only because it's the proximity, but I heard that Danny Boyle was directing. He was the artistic director for the opening and closing of the games. Right. And it's, it's just beautiful because what he did was he gave um, a, a cultural history of Britain. Right. Mm -hmm. But not not in a triumphalist way, because 
almost everything that he tried to touch on has in fact has has a sort of um uh what's the word i'm looking for not bled out but but seeped into world culture right so you see the beatles and you've seen james bond um parachuting out of a helicopter with queen elizabeth ii now we know it wasn't the queen at all but they brief pre-filmed it and all this sort of stuff but there was a fantastic moment in the the opening uh, ceremony to the london games where all of a sudden you saw the national health service being commemorated right and this is in the middle of a tory government which is at which is hell-bent on destroying the national health service cutting all its funding and um uh, it's been well documented danny boyd says i want to do the national health service and because the british government were investing throwing so much money into the into the the olympics uh, they said well we'll feel uncomfortable with that and danny boyd says well if you don't do it i'm not i'm not i'm pulling out and he had been able to generate such a, a loyal team around him that he knew that if he pulled out, everyone would walk with him. Huh. So my point here is really, if Kurosawa had done it, he would, have, he would have made it not only really, really phenomenally interesting, not only his own, but he would have been drawing back into the, the mythology of Japan, the, the, the modernization of Japan. And Uchikawa... I don't think went near the opening ceremony in terms of trying to control it. He just filmed it. Well, and and I think I think also I mean, I, I wanted to touch on this is I I had my girlfriend walking through the living room when I started this, and I said I don't know that you're going to want to see this, but uh, why don't you just check out the opening ceremonies and see if this intrigues you? Because she's not a big sports fan. Um, and then you see 93 countries parade through, 93, parades through the Olympic Stadium for the open, opening ceremonies, and there's this pageant of all of them having different uniforms, and the way it was filmed, and she said, this is a sports film? Like, what? what is he doing? This is so interesting. Yeah. And I found that where there's this kind of uniformity from like the 84 games on is this professionalization of sports. I mean, this is 1964. Think about like where any of the leagues in America are with sports or where, you know, soccer was certainly massively popular across Europe and, and many parts of the world, but there wasn't this clarity of what professionalized sports is supposed to be where, you know, now every stadium is named after just corporations and all the athletes. Michael Jordan at the Olympics in 1992 is wearing a jersey that's not Nike. It's Reebok that's sponsoring his uniform. So, he, so he wears the American flag covering the logo. You know this kind of thing. In this, it, there's none of that. It's just human beings express being a manifestation and expression of where they're from culturally. So it's not just them walking differently it's yeah. that the, the way they're looking around or the way they're enjoying the ceremony in a way that doesn't look like they're enjoying it for the cameras yeah. they're just enjoying this magnificent excursion because probably none of these people are making any real money back yeah. where they are like yeah. what what any of these sports i mean even the hundred meter dash how professionalized was the hundred meter dash what was bob hayes making um for any track meets, sure, none of these people, yeah, like nothing. So yeah. there's just a sense like that the stage is set 
at the beginning for an artist offering an impressionistic portrait of this event um, that is just so unlike and, and, and so unexpected in perspective that I found myself wondering all the way through this, what is he going to do with this sport? What is he going to do with volleyball? What is he going to do with the 100-meter dash? What is he going to do with gymnastics? Where did any of these things come from? They're so pointless, you know, yeah. in, in terms of any practical necessity in being in the world. But there's something joyful about, yeah. uh, about their pointlessness that he seems to have a sense of humor about, but is not mocking, but no, no, he's, no. he's just embracing it, but almost in real time sorting out how he feels about it without some right. external pressure of, of like a mandate of what it means. That's it. Yeah, there's no hidden agenda and there's no preconceived notion on, as to what this sport signifies. You know, it's, it, I mean, clearly it wasn't the case, but it's, it's almost the case that you, you get the sense that this is the first time he's, he's seeing this sport and he's, in, he's deciding which way to shoot it right now, you know. And um, also, I mean, you know, let's not kid ourselves, Tokyo was blessed, the Tokyo Games were blessed with the phenomenal backdrop of Mount Fuji, which we see in the documentary. And, you know, it has so much going for it visually because it's absolutely breathtaking symmetry to the mountain. There's nothing behind it. There's nothing in front of it. It's not like when we're looking at the Sphinx or we're looking at you know, other, other great, I mean, I know the Sphinx is man-made, but if we look at other great geographical locations throughout the world, there's always something behind it or there's something in front of it. Even the Grand Canyon has Grand Canyon within it. So there's different, do you see what I'm saying? And no yeah, matter where yeah. you put your camera almost with Fuji, it's just, it's so symmetrical, which is in keeping with, you know, the Japanese sense of cultural and the artistic sense of balance and harmony, right? Um, and that's a thing that Ichikawa would have grown up with. It's like just a, sh a shrug on his shoulder. He says, well, of course, because that's, this is the cultural icon that we have. It's like, you know, I don't know, again, I'm using a, a, a man-made landmark, but it's like talking to someone from Paris and they're not marveling about the Eiffel Tower. Because, yeah, I, I see it every day. You know, I know what it, I know what it represents. I know what it signifies. But you're absolutely right. It's all, it's, there's, there's no agenda. It's not, but it's not adorned. It's not affected, you know. Um, and also, again, to think about it in terms of today, you're looking at swimming, right? Today, we have the camera underneath the water. And we've got the camera tracing alongside the, the swimmers, almost at, at water height. So it's like the Jaws shot, as though we're almost yeah. going to start, um, start swallowing water ourselves. And he doesn't do any of that, which is what Riefenstahl did in her documentary. She put the camera in these very, very... And he doesn't. He always, he, I think part of the key, Bryn, is that he puts, the, he puts the camera where the spectator would be in real life. Uh, right? Yeah. And... You know, for all the, the wonder and the delight once or twice of seeing, of have a camera moving around the track when the athletes are running. And um, I think the reason why, the only reason why that works today, uh, we can see it 10 times in each Olympics, it only works when there's a really, really great emotional story to that particular event. For me, I, one of my favorite images in, in modern Olympics is when they're doing the 200. Right. Peeling off the bend. I love the way to peel off the bend because the athletes actually go on a little bit of a slant, right? And when the camera's moving, you see the background changing as well. 
at, at sort of um, it's almost at a geographic sorry it's almost a geometric shift in our perspective as opposed mm -hmm. to running on the flat with the with the audience with the spectators the same distance equidistant all the time that's one of my favorite shots in the Olympics is peeling off the bend but Ichikawa didn't need to do that um, because there's no there's no spectator on earth who can keep up with this, with a, with an athlete as they're racing around the brand to, to break to break the record so he's just as you're saying, he's just showing it the way the audiences in the stadium would see it. Right. You know, um, which which suggests that he's downplaying it, that he's taking the drama out of it, but it makes it more special. I, uh, it, it reminded me a little bit, I don't know if you've ever seen the film about Zinedine Zidane. I think it's just called Zidane, a 21st century portrait. Uh, and then Spike Lee just completely stole the concept and did it with Kobe Bryant. Like, God, what an embarrassment <laughs> to just steal the entire thing. And um, anyway, it was really interesting to watch that film because for those who don't know, the agenda of the filmmakers was just, we're going to spend the course of, of one soccer match. We're going to have dozens of cameras all over the stadium and we're just going to watch him and, yes. and, yeah. and and how often is he going to get the ball over the course of a game maybe for 45 seconds or or a minute yeah. a minute yeah. and 15 seconds like that's it the rest of the time is him kind of walking around watching uh little ticks that he has yeah. um dragging his toe along the the, the <laughs> turf um there's a lot of that um but also just little sounds you can hear. But you're yeah. very aware, uh, as you know, if you've ever played sports and your parents have come to your games, that you're watching this the way your parents watched you. That, yeah, there's the action of what's happening and that's fine. But the main reason they're there, I, I say this especially with a father who didn't give a flying fuck about sports at all, um, right. had tremendous antipathy. But... I always felt the eyes on me. So when I would come out of, you know, trying to win the game or score the goal, um, you'd see him following his boy doing something that he never did yeah. and, and trying to learn the rules and, and get into why there are stakes involved with this. And after you disengage from the, you know, the normal way that we're encouraged to watch sports where it's all winning and losing and zero sum and everything, yeah. It is so intriguing to to be afforded the the intimacy with somebody um, in ways that you're just not allowed to with with this attention deficit disorder camera footage that we get for everything now. It all needs to be action, 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 action. But in between the action are such revealing moments about people that um, you know we measure a lot of things almost on a metaphysical level against these people that we idolize and have elevated simply because they play a childish game and get to keep playing it into yeah. adulthood in a way that our lack of talent prohibits us yeah well it's then and then it becomes not not only becomes you know based in empathy it, it moves beyond that because it's it's fantasy it's wish fulfillment and it's living the dream by proxy mm -hmm. um but the brilliant thing about the Zidane documentary is that you see the player, the genius that Zidane was and is as a manager in isolation. And yeah. there's this chaos, not the chaos, but this is 
huge event going on around him. And I don't think they, they could have chosen a better player because he was such a Zen master. Oh, yeah. When he had the ball, when he didn't have the ball, ferociously competitive, a phenomenal physique, incredibly strong, so balletic in his touch. His balance was unbelievable. The goals that he scored, but to see him go through the 90 minute match and he's our sole focus, and you're saying to yourself, what's the score? Where are the other players? Who's he passing to? Who's he looking at? And then all of a sudden, you know, after a while, you realize a game like that is played strangely, even though it's a team game, in isolation. Because what the player is doing is they're reading the game in their own subjective way at the same time trying to have this. I won't even say it's, it's more than a sixth sense. They've got to have apparently, I, I'm just reading, I, this morning I read this really, really interesting article in the Guardian newspaper called What is Football Intelligence and Can Players Develop It? And like all sports, it happens in real time so quickly that the athlete has to go beyond thinking. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, they have to process a movement without thinking about it. Yeah. It's, 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 the in, it's the instinct. And that's where you see beautiful things like in, in Ichikawa's film, fencing, for example. And the wonderful thing about that sequence was you don't see their face. You have no idea, you know, Shakespeare talk about, spoke about, can you see the, the, the mind printed on the face, the thought process? You can't, it's an enigma, what the person is feeling or thinking or how they're going to maneuver, and they still perform. And because, it's a, it's a really, really interesting example, because because they have, they have the visor on, the face, the mask on, you then project your thoughts and emotions onto this non-face. Yeah. And, that's what I mean about it puts you inside the mind of the athlete. And, you know, if you go back to watch it then again, you, you know, to really, really study it, as all athletes would do today, at what point did you make that decision to do this and not to do that? Why didn't you do that? Because doing that lost you the contest. Next time you're in the cauldron, don't do that. Right. You know, it's, it's, and the, the great thing is when you're looking, especially at the fencing, he goes for these shots at the feet, um, which is obviously really, really important for the fencing contest. But you say to yourself, it happens so fast, it's over and done and you're gone. And there's no coming back. You have lost the medal. Do you know? And that's what I'm saying. That's what you're saying is that Ishikawa treats it in the same way. It's like Rudyard Kipling's poem. If you can keep your head around you while all those, well, if you can keep your head while all those around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can keep it in that, that moment and treat victory and defeat in the same way. And that's what, I think what this documentary does, it's not about gold medals. It's not about triumph. It's about the phenomenon of engagement. You know, the intensity of that moment in the contest. And really, the Olympics at its best, that's what it's all about. And as we were saying, it's about the gold medal. It's about the endorsement. It's about singing the national anthem. Yeah, but it's also about that moment that won you the contest or lost you the contest or experienced learning so much about yourself from that contest. It, it also reminds me, I, I totally agree with everything you said, uh, but there's an element of this that reminds me of, of that observation that Caravaggio made in terms of his subjects, which is, right. I do not want to take the Bible, which I believe in, and I'm terrified of what it's telling me in terms of how I'm leading my life. I, I I am in charge. The job that I've been given from the church is to be the ambassador of right. that. We do not have films to sell 
the people that this is what happened in the Bible. They're illiterate, the masses. My job is to provide movies through an yeah. image. And right. to do that effectively, to create empathy, I am not going to put people on my canvases that don't look real. I'm going to take people from the Bible and make them look like you. Like yeah. you, the common person. Your feet are going to be dirty. Your fingernails are going to be filthy. Um, if it's a prostitute, if it's Mary Magdalene, I'm going to find a, a drowned prostitute and depict her. Um, it, it is, and it's and contrary to everything that had been done up to that point, where we were always in the image elevated to to look like angels. Now put regular people's faces on these people, and and I was thinking like, as you're watching these events, where on the surface. I am not that drawn to the hammer throw. I don't yeah. particularly care about 62 meters versus 62.4 meters and the agony and ecstasy of, of that differential that separates a gold from, yeah. from not being on the podium. Um, but there is something about all of these sports that are depicted where part of me is seeing them like if, if I had the ability to just place a GoPro on say the Battle of Troy, yeah. I only want to follow Achilles. I don't particularly care about like the wide angle of what's yeah. happening. I yeah. want as much time with the most interesting characters possible. Yeah. And this sort of allows for every character that it's filming. Some of them, as you were saying, uh, the Ethiopian marathon runner is breaking a world record. You know, he's an incredible athlete, but a lot of other times you're seeing people that are going nowhere other than that they're a brilliant hammer thrower. And yeah. and one thing I wanted to get into with this is how long it takes for women to come in and enter the stage of, of yeah. performance. And granted, I mean, this is an extraordinarily sexist time in sports. I mean, it's going to be 50 years until women can compete in boxing, for example. Um but I'm sure it was much more restrictive to women and audiences were not acclimated to, to watching women compete in sports. There's no real professional sports for women, uh, even where it's developed for men. What, what did you make of that? Like just the predominance of men seemed about equal in terms of women in the crowd. There was a big focus he had of women watching this, mothers with their kids. But the actual performers, it was very male-dominated. Yeah, um, and also you, you, the I think the first time we see um, a female athlete is when we see the one hundred meters freestyle coming in. Um, now I'm not letting the filmmakers off the hook, but there, if we're looking at it, we see a the number of Japanese female athletes who carry the torch, which I thought was very interesting because it's sort of there's a there's a gentle introduction. Of, of women into the sporting arena. Um, and th the film is acknowledging that. But once it gets into the athleticism, to the actual competition, then there's a very, very, very heavy focus on it. Um, um, but and the interesting thing is that there are wonderful stories that emerge in the documentary, uh, especially amongst the female athletes. Um, uh, Sharon Stouder, she was 15. American um, swimmer, she she won three golds, I think three or four gold medals in that, and she's she's featured. But one story that I really really liked there's um, there's a British runner, her, her name uh, Anne Packer, and we see her 
running the 800 and uh, she is nowhere in the frame in the leading pack and then with about uh, uh, 250 to go she sort of appears on the periphery of the frame and then she just puts on the burners and she just rips through and she has such a kick on her and she wins the gold and it's only at the end that it, it transpires that she only ran the 800 brim because she had failed to win her 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 chosen uh, uh, competition of the 400. She won mm-hmm. a silver in that, and then it transpires that at the behest and the encouragement of um, and, and the encouragement of her fiance, that she decided to, as a compensation, okay, okay, I'll try the 800, and she goes to win. You know, so these these stories are there if the filmmakers can take the time to unearth them. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. The the focus of attention is predominantly on the men, um, and I think it's I think women come into it more when we see gymnastics and swimming. Yeah. Um, and the domination definitely is for men on track and field. But what I do find was interesting was the the young Japanese girls that you see waving on the side of the street as a Japanese woman runs by with the, with the torch, you see, and I think, I don't know how much of that would have been a Japanese decision, how much of that would have been in the international Olympic committee decision. And also for, for people who are listening, who haven't seen the documentary to make sure that they follow the, the, the reference that you gave is to watch the criterion collection version, because there, I think there are at least three different versions of the documentary. Right. Ichikawa one, and then the others were bowlerized. They were it was taken out of his hands because he wasn't doing enough of what they wanted him to do. Right. Uh, you know, the, the International Committee Olympic Committee wanted one and the Japanese wanted one. So what we're seeing here, I think, is absolutely there's today there will definitely have to be much more of a balance, uh, uh, gender balance in the in the performance and who, who we're watching. Um and because of it, as you said, we don't see women until I think it's about, I don't know, maybe it's about 30 minutes into the three hour documentary. Right. First one is swimming. So, yeah, that is if we're to, to, to point up a flaw, that is a serious one. But I thought what was great was that they, um, the, the drama of the volleyball, the Japanese against the Russians. Yeah. And goes, literally goes down to the wire because one of the Russian athletes on the team, she hit the net and he goes with this fantastic freeze frame. Right. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's the reason why the Japanese won. It was 14-13 and the, the Russians hit the net. So, you know, there are moments all across the, uh, the, the Olympics where you find phenomenal dramas. It's just that they've got to go and find them, you know, and, 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 and dig them out. Well, and, and I think we should talk about the controversy with this film that Ichikawa's film uh, was extraordinarily controversial, chiefly with the Japanese government that yeah. in no way said, we want this to be what, what the film was, what, what mm. they saw when he offered them a cut of the film. Um, it was very much supposed to be something that was pro, pro-Japan pro and, and very um, focused as something pr- propagandistic. Yeah. And Ichikawa certainly did not go that direction on any level. I feel like everybody's pretty equally taken yeah. the measure of. Um, 
But but what they did is they just dramatically cut the film from an original 170 minutes to 93 minutes, and it took a long time for people to catch up to this film that this was not a failure of him doing what the Japanese government wanted to be. He had no intention of making anything like that kind of film and yeah. regarded on its own terms. I mean, it's like saying, I just don't like this Matisse painting. It's too colorful. <laughs> you know, or, or Miro, it's just too, it's too joyous. Like yeah. I, we need something more somber. And, um, you know, the way music is used in this, I mean, it's so far ahead of its time this film on so many levels and so daring. I mean, daring in a way that I can't imagine a filmmaker trying to do this now. I don't know who the audience would be because we're so conditioned about okay. how we view sports in a way that has really lost me as a viewer. I just don't find it compelling the way yeah. it's presented. Yeah, and you see it in those, quote, reality TV shows like American Idol or Who's Got Talent or, you sure. know, where everything is um, staged and stage managed and fictionalized to the point that when we're watching the Olympics, we're expecting this moment to follow that moment because we've seen that moment 2000 times before. And hang on a second, the athlete is supposed to turn to the crowd and kiss and wave. And why are they down on their bended knees kissing the earth? Oh, we've seen that. We've seen that before. But, you know, we've seen all these moments because it's, it's, it's so covered. And I think you're absolutely right. If a documentarian were to do it today, they'd have to strip it back almost to, to cleanse our eyes of all the thousands of hours that we've seen of, of um, um, the contest and the confrontation and the, the battles of it. But that's, that brings me to the, the moment of boxing in the, in the film. Yeah, yeah, let's get to that. Which isn't a moment of contest. It's after the fact. Joe Fraser walking, making the lonely path back to the, the, the changing room in, under the stadium in the tunnel. And it's a remarkable shot of phenomenal simplicity. Um, we don't see his face for almost two thirds of the long shot. The camera is walking with him, behind him. We see him in his white robe and the, the USA letters emblazoned on it. And interestingly, it's shot in black and white. It's the only, that and one bout, one boxing bout is shot in black and white, a three-hour movie in beautiful, beautiful Technicolor. And it's in black and white. You know, when I saw it, the hairs went up on the back of my neck because I said to myself, oh my God, this is the raging bull shot. Mm -hmm. I'll contextualize that in a minute, but it, it's, it's almost as if I'm looking at Jake LaMotta walking Away, because it's black and white. Do you know what I mean? Sure. What did you make? What did that What did that shot mean for you? Well, again, I mean, as, as I mentioned, I found myself from the beginning. I thought, Jesus, if you can, with the pageantry of the opening ceremonies, make this absolutely arrestingly compelling, what are you going to do with the actual events? And after every event, I'm floored by the choices he makes. I was bit by bit waiting for my sport. You know, right. for boxing to show up, and I thought, what is he going to do here? Is it going to be we're just watching somebody in the crowd and we don't ever see the boxing? Like, how is he going to do yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. But instead, he goes for one of the, you know, the probably the biggest name to emerge from these Olympics in boxing, Joe Frazier. Yeah. And it's four years after Muhammad Ali has won the Olympics. You know, the you know who is 
celebrating the Olympic Village at that time as such a beautiful uh, expression of youth and how handsome he is and the joy of him. Joe Frazier, quite the contrast, yes. subdued, humble, sharecropper's son um, from from the South, you know, grew up in the South, uh, not a, a particularly verbose person, you know, like, you know, the opposite of the loquacious Ali. This is a taciturn person, family man, yeah. and you're seeing him as a young person. Frazier has one of those faces and those bearings that seems like he was born at 50, like sort of like Max von Sydow. Yeah, uh, he, he for him to age into his own body. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really bizarre to see him. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how old he was in 64, but I'm guessing, you know, 21, something right. like that. And to see him walk away, uh, you know, that was a major threshold for me as somebody who's covered the sport as a journalist for 10 years is to go from spectator to being given permission into the inner sanctum of where they live in the dressing room. Right. Because all the people around them are this surrogate family. Yes. And when it goes well, it's sort of, thank God. And no matter how strong they are, no matter how accomplished you know they are, I mean, I've, I've gone back to the dressing room or, or been in the dressing room before an event and then gone back to it after and been with a two-time Olympic champion, uh, Cuban boxer, Guillermo Rigondeau, and thought, I know how good he is. But now I've met his family, and now I know all this personal stuff that's going on. And somebody over there wants to use him and use all the great accomplishments of his life to be a notch in their belt so that they can yeah. go off and do their thing. Right. And he's just one punch away from losing this incredible, formidable reputation. Mm -hmm. And... And unlike every other sport, I don't think there's any sport that is comparable to when you lose, how diminished you become from what you were just a second before while you were standing and fighting. Yeah. So to see Frazier, as you say, we don't need to see what he's done winning the Olympics with a broken hand uh, or, or broken thumb. I'm sorry, broken thumb. Uh, you know, major deficit. Every single punch he's landing is going to hurt like fucking hell. Yeah. Um, but you're seeing him walk away. You're seeing him in that Jack Kerouac phrase. I think at the end, near the end of On the Road. Uh, what is that feeling when you're watching a person turn into a speck and disperse off into the horizon? Right. You know that that's a feeling. It's a goodbye feeling. Yeah, yeah. And I think boxers are always aware, not just of their mortality, but when this power that they're endowed with is going to leave them. Yeah. And when, when those skills and their reflexes and their timing and their power, uh, when that can just be taken away. Yeah. And here Frazier is walking away, but because we're looking back on it, you know, yeah. almost 56 years ago, um, we know how it went. We know there's some tremendous triumphs. We know he's he put Ali down in this iconic moment and beat him, gave yeah. him that defeat. And yeah. we know that there were two more battles where he fought almost to the death, that Stop. even this young version of Frazier was somebody who was hiding from the world, that he was almost blind in one eye. So, yeah. So when you watch him in the thrill in Manila, probably his most famous fight, and the other eye is closing, 
you were watching, you're watching a blind I, fighter. I never knew that. So I, he is he he charging and following Ali being in that chest. He's there because he can't see somebody who's at any distance from him. Wow. And so I found myself as he's walking and physically diminishing with the distance that he's afforded, yeah. just thinking, who is this guy and who is he imagining he will become in the world after, after this achievement? This is a passport into becoming somebody special, not just in the annals of boxing, but in the annals of the sport in American culture at that time. Right. And right. he has the ability to meet presidents, as he did, and meet presidents wherever he goes in the world because of who he has the potential to now become. Right. And right. yet there's that little moment where he turns turns I around yeah. turns around at the camera that's following him and just waves, but it's also saying, Leave me alone now. You that's the that's it. You don't have, I, I would appreciate, and it's humble, I, I would appreciate, I need to be left alone now. Yeah. I've been out in the world, but it's like the bull that comes out into the sunshine um, is, is blinded. It doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And very rarely, once in, in a dozen, two dozen bullfighters' career, there will be a bull that's so courageous that the crowd will wave white handkerchiefs and it means that it can be pardoned right and right it gets to go off and leave the ring after the matador mimes the kill with his hand he slaps the hump on the okay. bull's shoulder and beckons the bull to leave the arena where it will live for the rest of its natural life right and there's a sense to me of a, a, a boxer has to always know when it goes to the ring, I may not be the same person when I leave this ring. It could be on a stretcher. I could be headed to a morgue. I could be headed to the hospital. Um, Frazier has that kind of solemn bearing. Mm -hmm. And um, that little wave uh, just made me think about his, his death many years later after this career is behind him and just wondering... I wonder if he ever thinks about this moment when there was just some weird uh, Japanese cinematographer following him into the dressing room after an Olympic gold victory yeah. and um, where he was in his life at that time on his way back to America to embark on the professional yeah. career and what he became on the American cultural landscape. Mm. Yeah, just just to just to try to add, I mean, what you've given to the listeners there, Bryn, is just is a tsunami. It's like it's an encyclopedia of references to it. If I can just try to add to it, for those of us, who, for those of the audience listening who haven't seen it, the camera is walking behind, handheld camera behind uh, Fraser, And then, as you said, he stops. We, firstly, there's no introduction as to who he is. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, this, in this one moment in the documentary, the contest isn't what's, what's being recorded here. As you said, winning and losing is not the focus of this documentary. The contest is the important thing. And now Ichikawa suddenly goes post-contest. We don't know who this, did this guy win or did this guy lose? And it's almost, as you said, treating him exactly the same way. And um, whether he did win or whether he did lose, he's in, an emo he's in a moment of um, um, not crushing, but huge isolation. Solitude, not, 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 sorry, solitude. 
right, reflective solitude. What is he reflecting on this interpretation? What is he reflecting on? Did he win or lose? And then he turns, and as you said, he waves the camera, but it's not, it's on hello. As you said, it's a request of let me be. And immediately when I saw that, I said, that's a gesture of suffering. Now, I didn't know that he had won, but as you pointed out, he was fighting with a broken thumb. So he comes in pain. And then when he waves to ask the the camera to stop following, the the cameraman obeys, agrees to the request. And so Frazier, as you said, walks away and becomes, he disappears. As you're quoting from Kerouac, he does become, he's like evaporates because he walks away so far that he becomes smaller and smaller and smaller within the frame. And there's so many different ways of interpreting it. And I don't know, I I doubt for a second that that's what, Ichikawa's instruction was because he was the director of photography or the cinematographer was reaction to what Frazier said. But I think that's just the discipline of the, the direction. This is, you know, Ichikawa would have spoken to the team and said, this is what I want to use. This is the type of lensing, this is the frame that we're going to use. I want you to be tight on this moment or whatever. And so that moment is elegiac. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, if only because, not only because we know that is Joe Frazier, and not only because we know what happened, uh, and not only because we know, as you said, what happened, was he thinking about what's going to happen to him in the future? There's, you know, there's so many different things that we can read into that one shot. That's what I, what I refer to as an atomic image, because it is so expansive. It literally blows out into so many different, or so many different, um, different directions at once, with such phenomenal energy and interpretation. What does this mean, right? Um, he's just he's just won the Olympic title. Where's the celebration? Yeah, you know it's it's, and I don't mean this in sort of in the romantic notion of it's the pain that he. It's literally, as you said, what do I do now? You know, I need to, maybe I need the solitude and the privacy of my dressing room, or I just need to go to sleep. I'm so exhausted. You know, there's so many different things about it. I think of all the, the images in the documentary and it's it's an orgy of phenomenal images. Yeah. Frazier is, I would put up there in the top one or two images in the entire documentary. I think yeah. I just see an image of Bikila, the, the Ethiopian athlete winning the gold in the, in the marathon for me is just, is rivals what happens with um, Frazier. But, also, we've got to say to ourselves, he shot in black and white. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's no way he, was, he wasn't anticipating what Scorsese was going to do. But the pretty thing is, you look at that, you go immediately, you say, Raging Bull. You know, as I said, it's, it's, it's a shot from Raging Bulls. But it's, it, but it's not. I can just contextualize it. There's, I don't think there's any way that Scorsese would have seen the, the full length um, version that Ichikawa had made, because, as you said, the Japanese government came in and shut that one down. But the, the movie that Scorsese was actually quoting from or u- using as an inspiration was uh, Robert Drew's documentary from 1960. And it's called Primary. It's about John F. Kennedy on the campaign trail. Huh. And just before he he goes out to give it an address to a crowd, Drew is literally right behind him on the shoulder. And he walks through a corridor, walks through a crowd of people, walks up through the, st- onto, through the steps backstage and then walks out onto the stage with the, with the crowd in front of him. And it's a shot that lasts about 30 seconds. And Scorsese has been, who is steeped in documentary. It's a piece of time to forget. 
steeped in documentary, filed that shot away in his head and said, and unleashed it for audiences in, in Raging Bull. That's fascinating. I, I mean, the Joe Frazier thing also I was kind of st struck by is I remember even as a little kid watching football and you really had to do something magnificent for there to be a moment where people would stop and celebrate. Right. You know, a touchdown, like yeah. the ultimate scoring. But yeah. now almost every play people want to celebrate every single moment. And it's yeah. sort of so it means that no celebrations mean anything. No, no, no. I agree with you completely. I mean, yeah. And there's something about Frazier, as you say, that like this victory means a lot more danger that I'm accepting in terms right. of as a professional. Yeah. Now, the, now the expectations are way higher than they were when I came into this. Yeah. And and he alone carries that burden. Yeah. Everybody, uh, one of my favorite boxing writers, Jimmy Cannon, said. Um, everybody around you will take everything from you except the beatings. They will not share yeah. in any of the pain or the broken bones or the bruises or the, the damage. You get that. They get to have a piece of everything else. Right. And Frazier carries that burden. Um, and as they say, you can't eavesdrop on a man in prayer. There's an element of that with every step that he's taking back to this dressing room with his inner sanctum that is very precious. And, uh, and I love that the cameraman, unlike some paparazzo, yes, allows him to leave the stage the way he's, he's just gently asked, you know, that's yeah. enough. You've had enough of me. Now leave me, leave me alone, please. Yeah. yeah. And it's a remarkable um, gentility with which he makes that request. He doesn't yeah. turn and say, hey, back off, back off, give me some space here, or, you know, or attack the camera. Um, and there's a thousand and one different reasons why Frazier didn't do that. One, maybe it's just his, ex his exhaustion. Another one would have been, I don't need to beat up on a cameraman. I've just won the Olympic title. You know, yeah. my, my thumb is too sore. There's so many different reasons why, but it's the, the, it's the gesture. It's, it almost reminds me in a strange way going back to another picture we discussed on the waterfront. Yeah. And we're in the back of the car and Rod Steiger pulls the gun on Marlon Brando and Marlon Brando very, 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 very gently. And I also tragically said, oh, Charlie, no. Oh, Charlie, <laughs> lowers the gun slowly. <laughs> right. It's almost as if Fraser had seen that and said, that's the way to tell this cameraman to get out of my face. Just gently yeah. wave, you know, it's... Um, it's remarkable. I mean, the thing is, we've, we've been speaking now about this gesture for, you know, um, a long time. And it's not just because this, uh, this series of podcasts is about boxing, but it's because the image is so strong. As I said to you in, in, in a, a documentary, which has so many indelible images, this one just has so much meaning. You know, well, it just, you know, it reminded me also, I used to have a recurring nightmare when I was a, a little kid of my dad just becoming ancient. Like he was a, a very energetic, virile 50-year-old when I was 20. And right. every time that we would say goodbye after we would spend time, I would sneak a glance of him walking away ah. and, and just watch him walking with the dog, you know, going off, going back home or going off on his way to, to walk the dog somewhere. 
And then this nightmare emerged where I would do that in the dream. And with each step away from me advancing, he would age two or three years. Wow. So after, after 10 steps, he would become enfeebled. Yeah. And I would wake up and go, oh, my God, my dad, you know, like, I, I can't go for a walk with him. If there's a, a hill, we can't climb a hill. And it would be, no, no, he's still that 50-year-old. He's fine. He's nice. okay. And many years later, with some heart stuff, we were going for a walk, and he said, I, I just need to sit. And then two blocks later, I need to sit. Two blocks right. later, I need to sit. And I thought, I am now living with that nightmare version yeah. of his fragility coming out to the forefront. Right. But I'm not the same person that I was at 20. Now I'm old enough and feel my own fragility that this is, this is okay. It's okay to be in the presence of this. It's not going to cause a nervous breakdown the way it was when I was 20. Yeah. And, and so what I thought of with Joe Frazier is Muhammad Ali was always trying to play up a version of somebody else that he saw and thought, that's a good thing to do. I, I love the way Sugar Ray Robinson dresses. I love the way Gorgeous George in professional wrestling is a heel I'll be that because people, if people pay to watch me because they hate me, it's just as good as if they love me. So it's always, Ali is, I think, so beloved in part because he's such a blank canvas for us to fill it with what we would like him to be. And I don't think he really, I think he was quite a simple person in a lot of ways, thrust into complex situations. Joe Frazier is not that. Joe Frazier has had to live the life that Ali was kind of pretending he had of, I'll be the representative of, of African-American society. Joe Frazier lived that, lived that extreme. Whereas Ali was a middle-class kid whose you know, dad was a church painter, murals and that kind of thing. But he did not experience anything like what Joe Frazier did of the African-American experience, which makes it all the more deplorable when he said, this is a white man's champion and, and all the racism he directed towards Frazier. But there's something about Frazier that is this, the way he walks is so revealing of who he is, of, I don't mean as a simple person, but as just a person, as the film, as the entire documentary is, an unadorned person. He's yeah, not yeah. passing off airs. He's not trying to be somebody he isn't. He just has this path out of where he came from through the vehicle of boxing. He has this strong stout body he's yeah. not a, he's not a phenomenal athlete where it's just oh the reflexes are incredible he's just unbelievably tough and right. determined right. and works harder than anybody and it's not beautiful to watch him he is not beautiful what he does is not beautiful um but it it, it it's just uh you know when you watch a great mechanic or you watch you know blue collar workers, a, a great lumberjack or something like that. There's, there's tremendous efficacy, but it just comes from them having done it a million times and working as hard with every moment of that they're doing it. They know how important it is for their family. They know that they have to risk everything to lift up these other people. You just feel the, the goddamn burden of his life on him. Right. Yeah. I didn't know that. So he wasn't a born boxer. Is that correct? He wasn't well, the box, beautiful bo with the ideal boxer's physique. He didn't. It was sheer toil and discipline and training. 
as opposed to some boxers have a beautiful poise and a beautiful balance. Is that correct? Yeah, he's got, you know, he just doesn't have any any of the great physical attributes so that he has to pressure, he has to take risks, he has short arms, he's short. Um, you know, that that's a body that needs to just constantly be coming and coming and coming. Whereas Ali, with an 82-inch reach and unbelievable reflexes and speed and timing, can break all the rules and right. can really limit and mitigate the risk that he's accepting in dominating people. Okay. Fra Frazier has to get into the fire every time in order to do what he needs to do. He's going to need to take punishment to give punishment. Ali didn't need to until three years out of the sport took that away from him. Right. And he was there to be hit. So okay. I don't know. So it's it's an element. I, I don't know what Ichikawa was looking at when he saw Joe Frazier, but Frazier is a, a pretty miraculous emblem of many of the people in this sport where somebody told me, I think it was Jim Lampley from HBO, that what he loved most about boxing is there's somebody there like you. There's somebody there who's your size. There's somebody there with your at your positive attributes and virtues and there's somebody there with your deficits and you know you you can identify with them more than you can where now every athlete is a superhero yeah, yeah. joe frazier is not a superhero joe frazier might very well look like your dad right he whereas just... ali didn't <laughs> yeah now i'm now i'm getting it and then as you said on top of that the revelation for me which i didn't know before was that he was didn't have sight in one eye. Yeah, he's legally blind in one eye. From so, from a, I think as an amateur before he ever turned professional, that was a serious issue for him that he kept secret. Well, for obvious reasons, yeah. yeah. But I think though, you know, Bryn, for if if we put ourselves in the in the shoes of Ichikawa and we're looking at the footage coming in from the documentary, from what's being sh uh, captured on the different contests, and you come across the shot of Frazier and you say, okay, let's see the fight. And they say, well, we didn't film the fight. And he says, okay, no problem. Because this, this, th that one image is going to tell us so much. Now, it, as we said, it wasn't staged. Ichikawa was not there to sort of say, this is the way I want to be framed. But as a phenomenal artist, he knew that that image on its own could tell so much. And as I said, we've been spending so much time talking about that one image not because this is a boxing orientated podcast it's because the image is so bloody strong it yeah. you know if it, it could have easily been another sport right yeah. like the player who's got sent off or a sin bind or whatever you know um in another contest or had it been an equestrian or do you know what i mean just that walk on its own just tells us so much and i think it, um it, it's a testament to ichikawa's level of artistry that, you know, although he didn't frame, uh, conjure the shot, when he saw it, he knew that this is going to tell volumes. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, I, I, you know, every, from the beginning of this film, you keep thinking, how is he going to top this? <laughs> I yeah. had that feeling like, okay, this is a new bar. I don't know how you're going to top this one. And then you're taken into another sport almost as if you're a goddamn satellite into another planet. Right, right. You know, right, like, right. let's drop into fencing. Let's drop into swimming. Let's yeah. look at the first time a fiberglass um, pole is used in pole vaulting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I 
sorry, sorry to yeah. interrupt, but what I found amazing about pole vaulting was the um, the mat on which they landed. It looked like just a, a ragtag of sheets. It did. Not this thing that we were used to today. And I have to say, you know, basketball was exciting, the soccer. There's one little moment in the soccer that I found really, really was the use of sound. Um, you know, it's relatively quiet. You hear, obviously, they're, they use the ambient sound of the crowd, but you hear the, uh, uh, yeah. and then you hear the, of someone kicking the ball, completely unexpected, right? Um, but having having gored so much on the, the image of Fraser, I have to admit that I wasn't aware of this, but this movie awoken me to the realization that my favorite sport when watching the Olympics is actually gymnastics. Mm. Um, it, but it's not a sport that I will seek out on a weekend. <laughs> um, I'm much more of a soccer guy. Rugby fascinates me as well. Um, basketball, but you know, it's not as readily available time-wise in, in Ireland for the exchange. But just gymnastics, there's something about the parallel bars and the rings and the floor exercises. Um, it's just, I can't really explain it. It's just the, and I don't want to sort of drift into the aesthetics and the poetry of it, but it's, maybe it's because you're not really competing against, in, in terms of a contest, it's like golf. You're not competing against the, the your opponents or the, the fellow players. You're competing against the course. You're battling the course. And for gymnastics, they're battling the bar, the bars, the parallel bars, the beam or the rings. And really, it's just the mastery of over your own body. Now, I know that goes for the vast majority, if not all of sports. It's the mastery over your own body. But, you know, we, we've been talking about the fact that the, the track and field events, the track was was run on clay yeah and so you know if you you would slip not necessarily because of yourself but just because that that lump of clay was loose and you couldn't get footing in it and you lost your footing and then you slipped and you lost the race in gymnastics there's no such thing as wind resistance <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> or a, you know an unlucky bounce it's just the rings and the bars that's my one thing about it um but again it's just one of the many reasons to watch the documentary um, uh, I can't wonder what it's like to watch the 90-minute version. I mean, what do they take out? My question is, if you're the editor of the three-hour, if you're editor of the 90-minute version, I mean, how did you decide what to take out other than just some bureaucrat with a clipboard saying, take out that shot because or that sequence because there's not enough Japan in it? And just go, yeah, but what shot do we take out? It's also beautifully formed. Well, I think I think one of the things they took out which is one of my favorite parts about the long version of this film is there's a there's a nation from the african continent i think from chad where he is the only representative of the whole country and and so you see him during the opening ceremonies that there's just one guy one guy behind his flag and midway through you get to follow him getting a meal Walking around Tokyo. Oh, yeah. And the culture shock of, you know, here I am. And he doesn't do anything in the competition. Like, he, yeah. he doesn't in any way meaningfully place. But you just get to have this sense of all these other countries that have these big entourages of, of, or, or uh, groups that are sent out. Um, this guy's totally alone. And, yeah. 
and just completely lost in Tokyo. Talk, talk about lost in translation. I mean, it's, it's a similar kind of feeling to, yeah. to what Sofia Coppola tries to render for these, these you know, very, very luxuriously living American tourists. This guy's not, you know, he's in the kind of communal setting of the Olympic Village and, and communal meals and everything. But again, I was just like, where did he get the idea to just set up cameramen to follow this one guy who's of no real consequence to this event? And yet he exemplifies something about it that, again, is just so poetically resonant about yeah. just, you know, the nature of participating in this thing. Well, that's it. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It, you know, uh, what possessed Ichikawa is what possessed Ichikawa all his way through his artistic life. The eye of a humanist. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. about victory. It's just about being there. It's the phenomenon of, of experience, experiencing the contest, ex witnessing the contest, you know, being part of it because you're, you're cheering them on. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I would have just loved to have been that in the, in the, um, in the production office. When Ichikawa and his team were looking through, he says, okay, we've got a couple of hundred athletes coming from America. We've got 96 athletes coming from here. Hang on a second. Chad, they've only got one guy. Okay, that's it. We're following. <laughs> it's a no-brainer when you think about it. You no, know, it but is. It's it, so easy just to ignore it. And here's the, here's the phenomenon, though. Here's the quandary of it, Bryn. If they, it's like... It's like if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make any sound? If they had not recorded that athlete, would the documentary have been diminished? Absolutely, because we've seen it. But if we had not seen it, we wouldn't know what we're missing. And that's what I mean about the humanist eye. Well, and I, I think I think that, you know, summing this up for me, what is magical about this film and totally transcend, transcendent as, mm -hmm. as an achievement is this is not just uh, the events. This is not just the surface. It's not just getting the meal at the best restaurant in the world. Right. This is, this is also its preparation. This is the backstage pass into the, 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 the chef who's created it, um, you know, who his family is, yeah. um, what it's like for him walking to the restaurant to serve you. Uh, you know, who the waiters are, who created the restaurant. Um, it's just so, so panoramic without it seeming like we will have a panoramic. There's no capital letters in this thing. There's no italicizing anything, anybody. It's just one guy's vision of this saying, I'm going to, you know, like, Anthony Bourdain, like one of the things I love about that show, which I was very late to, is all the people around him said, this is completely selfishly, not really for anybody's benefit, but his. Okay. The thrust of this is Anthony wants to meet his heroes. Anthony yeah. wants to go to all the places that he wants to go to based on his literary and film references. Yeah. We're here to realize that vision in as original and compelling a way as possible. But... This is not for you as an audience. This is for him. Right. And it's, it's almost coincidental that it will work out for you as something really compelling too. Yeah. And and you know, if you if you look at Anthony Bourdain's programs, like specifically the latter ones where he had more autonomy and go, "Oh, it's my favorite cooking show." Well, then you would look at this and say, "This is my favorite sports show." But this has nothing to do with sports. <laughs> 
<laughs> and yet it does. And yeah, yet, yeah. yet it, yeah. uh, it, it, it elevates and distills at the same time in a way that I've never seen anybody else do with this kind of material. Well, maybe it was just that magical moment with a, a wonderful artist like Ichikawa. The game is coming to Tokyo. As you said, it's pre the commercialization. It's pre-digital because we don't have people with cameras. Um, yeah. Whether they're, even with Kodak cameras, you know what I mean? We don't see, if that comes later, I think that comes in 72, 76. Um, as you said, it's the political, politicization. But, let, but here's the same thing. I was just thinking about that, Bryn, for a second. To be honest, the, you know, sport has always been political. The Olympics have always been political. I mean, the, the early Olympic games would have been the choices in which the big cities that they go to. and How long did it take for them to, or for, you know, World Cup for FIFA, for example, to take the games to an African country? It's always been Europe and South America, Europe and South America. And then they went to, to they shared it between Japan and South Korea. So th there is the politicization of it. But I mean, I think what maybe, I don't want to put words in there, but really what we're talking about is the ideologues getting involved, in the dogma and saying, you know, this is an opportunity for us, for the capitalist democratic West to really stick it to the Eastern, uh, the communist countries in Eastern Europe, or as the Russians did, this is a chance for us to, pump our athletes full of the most disgusting drugs <laughs> to turn sure. them into track. So yeah, maybe um, that's one of the reasons why the documentary works so well. Is it just it's just has that moment, as you said, fever dream, but it's it's not. Yeah. It's very clear. And it just happens to capture that really that the perfect moment uh, in the history of the Olympics. It, I think it's my favorite sports documentary that I've ever seen. I just on, on, on a lot of different levels, you're just jaw drop. Uh, <laughs> how did this happen, let alone happen in 1964? Because it seems like, uh, you know, it's like one of those great mathematicians who's stranded on an island that hasn't interacted with anybody. Right. He's not, I don't see endless references where even the great American filmmakers late into their career are still quoting people endlessly. This guy, I don't have a sense that he's quoting many people. It's just kind of, he went there and just said, here's what I think about this and this and this and this and this and this. Now go do it. Right, right. It's, and and well, that's, that's fun. Yeah, that's the thing, the humanist eye. You know, he, he didn't have to go to art school for it. He didn't have to go to film school. He doesn't have, it's just, this is, this is the story. This is really, really interesting. Yeah. You put the camera here and it'll pass by. The, the, the story will present itself. If we put the camera here, it'll happen for us, you know? And you're going to get a backstage pass to the human condition, not just from the people performing, but the people watching and the people organizing, whether they be VIPs or the absolute nosebleed cheap seats, you're going to get equal access to this backstage pass that this director offered. And... Uh, yeah, I'm just so delighted that this exists, that somehow this wasn't burned, yeah. <laughs> you know, after yeah. the was. Yeah. They, they almost took the whole thing apart. Uh, so thank God for Criterion Collection. Yes. Yes. Um, so thank you so much, Stephen. This was great fun. I love this film. Uh, have a wonderful Christmas. And uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Brent. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.